you still need to do your net asset value test with let's say 20%, but you also need to do a separate, either a net asset value test or a turnover test for the entity itself, not including your own assets. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 165 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When you want to claim the small business CGT concessions for a small business that really is small, passing the basic conditions is usually not that complicated. The business is below the turnover test of 2 million and net value assets are clearly below 6 million. There might be a question around the 15-year exemption and whether the sale really happened in connection with retirement of a significant individual, but usually things are relatively straightforward. Where it gets complicated is when you get close to the thresholds, when the business doesn't look like a small business. Or, to use a metaphor, when you try to squeeze a foot into a shoe, but the foot is much bigger than the shoe. <laughs> That is where the small business CGT concessions can get really tricky. So here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney with some insights. Do you work on a lot of small business CGT concession cases? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. An accountant might come across it once or twice or three times in, in a decade. Yeah. Or maybe once a year, but yeah. really not that often. And I can imagine when you look at the numbers involved, there's a high risk to get it wrong. And I think... That, Absolutely. So is that yeah. why lawyers are usually involved with the small business CGT concessions? Or yeah. is it that lawyers are involved because you need to draft the contracts? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, first of all, these these concessions have been around for a little, little while now. They've been around for about 15 years and over the course of time they've been, they've been tinkered with slightly. They've also been designed to try to fit every circumstance imaginable you know in australia we've got companies and we've got partnerships and we've got trusts and then those trusts could be discretionary trusts they could be hybrid trusts and you've got all these different kinds of business structures so the the concessions have tried to be built so that they can deal with a whole host of circumstances it's difficult when you're writing legislation to, you know if we were just talking about sole traders or companies where the shareholders are just individuals, it would be relatively simple to, to put that together. But because it's the small business concessions, it's dealing with so many different situations. They are by nature quite complex. The point you made about accountants is absolutely correct. You know, you might have a client come across the concessions two or three times a year, you're, you're reasonably comfortable with the, the main bits of it, but there's always uh, little bits that rear their ugly head that where the law might not be clear or it, it might be grey on a particular issue or this is a complex circumstance where we've got unit trusts with, high, with discretionary trusts owning those and one of the person is retiring or there's a question whether some assets are connected or not. So, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is in this in the sort of more straightforward circumstances, 
lawyers are probably less likely to be involved. But as the dollars get bigger and the issues become more complex, then it's more likely that lawyers would be involved. We do also get involved in the, I guess, the planning stages as well. So sometimes there's not much you can do at the at the pointy end when, okay, we're going to sell this business. You know, you could still choose whether it's a business sale or an asset sale, for instance, but the real planning opportunities sometimes take place many years before. To give you an example of that, the concessions look at not only the entity that's done the transaction, but entities that are connected with that with that entity. And that uh, has a sort of historical element to it. So by planning for these kind of things, you can you can sort of try to get a better outcome as well. Whereas if you're doing it all at the 11th hour, as you know, if you've got clients coming at the very last minute saying, what can we do to fix this or change this? It's a lot less you can do. And, a lot, and it usually looks you know, a bit worse as well from a sort of an anti-avoidance perspective when it's at the very last minute. So... Yeah, I, I routinely advise on, on, on this area, yeah. And so the reason lawyers get involved is A, because the stakes are high, and also B, you draft the sales contract and the sales contract needs to be drafted in a certain way so that we don't fall foul of the small business. Yeah, yeah. In, in some circumstances, yeah. that's that. Sometimes it, it sort of doesn't matter how the contract is, is drafted, but in some, some circumstances... It does, and sometimes there's stuff that needs to be done before a transaction happens. For instance, if there's if it's a company and you're selling shares and they've got discretionary dividend access shares on issue, then they might need to be cancelled before the sale of the ordinary shares, for instance. So yes, that's um, yeah. Sometimes there's stuff that needs to be done. So you also often consult on the small business CGT concessions, even though you're not involved in drafting the actual sales contract. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the two things don't necessarily go hand in hand. The consulting on the small business CGT concessions and the drafting of the sales contract don't necessarily go hand in hand. It really depends. I mean, I would like it to always be a hundred percent because when you can, you have complete control of a transaction, that's always you know you're not reliant on other parties. But no, we'll often get involved after um, after the fact. So the transaction may have already happened. Uh, could be a sale of a property, it could be a sale of a business, and we could be involved, yeah, a, a year after it's it's already happened. So, yeah, in an ideal circumstance, we're involved in it all, but you know, it's not a it's not a big issue. Small business CGT concessions, a lot of money. <laughs> yep. So there's a lot of money and they can be very valuable for taxpayers. They can potentially result in millions of dollars of tax saved. They can allow companies to extract money tax-free in certain circumstances. And they can also allow um, individuals to place very large sums of money into superannuation without falling foul of any of the normal Contribution. Super, yeah, the contribution caps or the $1.6 million balance limit either. So they can save a lot of tax and they can help with superannuation as well. You mm. definitely can get everything into super, into accumulation, but whether you can then move it from accumulation to pension 
then you still have the 1.6 million cap. Yeah, yeah, correct. However, yeah, that's that's exactly correct. If in a normal course you wanted to make a uh, non-concessional contribution, your balance was already over 1.6 million, you're not even able to make that contribution. Ah, yeah, good point. Yeah, so you could have a client with $2 million in super and, and using the small business concessions, they might be able to put another 1.5 million into super where otherwise there's, you know, no way that they would be able to do that. So Yes. So they could move another 1.5 million into super, but then leave it in accumulation. They couldn't move it then also into pension mode. Yeah. 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 And and these small business concessions, as I alluded to earlier, are really complex. And whenever there's complexity, there's, I guess, what's called, I don't want to use the word loopholes, but there's situations where you'd think that someone would be able to claim the concessions where they cannot and situations where you'd think that, well, maybe they can't claim the concessions, but they can. So you've got to go through the detail and work out just based on the on the law whether whether you can or can or, or not claim the concessions. And sometimes what sort of your gut feel is, is, is not correct. So yeah, there can be some, and that's sort of evidenced a little bit by the, the recent changes that have happened in this uh, in this space as well. What are the basic thresholds to get into the small business CGT concessions? So we've got to have some sort of transaction. We need a, we need a CGT event. Something's being disposed of or transferred, and the taxpayer needs to needs to meet one of two criteria to even go any further, and that's either the what's called the $6 million net asset value test, meaning that they and uh, entities connected with them need to have assets of less than $6 million. Or alternatively, the taxpayer needs to be carrying on a business and have turnover or likely turnover of less than $2 million. That's called the small business entity test. So that means if you sell your business for more than $6 million, yeah then you're probably already out. Yeah, 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 correct. There's been some technical arguments over market value because it's a set's market value assessed just before the the CGT event, but yeah, you're correct. If you're if you're selling your business for more than $6 million, a lot of the time you will be excluded. That's not to say you would always be excluded though. You could have a situation where you're running a farming business and you sell the land you could sell the land for $100 million, but if you're carrying on a farming business with a million dollars of turnover and the land is worth $100 million, you'd still meet that first requirement. So it means that if you sell your business for more than $6 million, you failed the net asset value test, but mm. there's still the chance that you can pass the small business entity turnover test. Yeah, correct, by being an entity that's carrying on a business with a, with a turnover under $2 million. With both of these tests, there's complex rules about what other entities need to be included. So it's not only the taxpayer. There's the rules called the affiliate rules and the connected entity rules. And they're, they're quite complex because they deal with trusts, and companies and partnerships, and they're all different for, for each of those entities. But essentially, these rules bring in a whole range of other entities, potentially, depending on what it is. So for instance, if it's a trust that's the taxpayer, 
and the trust has made income and capital distributions, you need to look at where those income and capital distributions have gone. And if more than 40% of the income and cap or capitals have gone to any particular taxpayer in the last four income years, they would be included. That's just one example. Um, the rules are really complex. And that's one of the areas that, that is quite complex, actually, especially in larger groups. Trying to work out who is connected and who is not can be, can be quite tough. And there's a bit of a planning opportunity there as well to potentially structure things in a way that you can limit the number of entities that, that are connected. So if you have a complex structure that involves trusts and companies, start planning at least five years earlier so that within the four years of the sale, the distributions go exactly to the people you want to be connected. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Or to not to the people that you don't want to be connected as well at the same token. So let's assume you meet one of those criteria. The next one you've got to get over is the CGT asset needs to be an active asset. Now, what that means is it needs to be used in a business and it needs to be used in a, in, in a business for more than half the period of ownership of the asset capped out at seven and a half years. So you work out how long have you got taxpayer works out how long have they held this asset? Um, okay, well, it needs to be used in a business either run by the taxpayer or someone connected with the taxpayer. It needs to be used in the business for at least half the period. So for instance, it could be a factory, quite distinct from the business, could be a different entity even. So long as you can connect the two entities, the factory would be used in the business. And renting out property doesn't count as being used in a business. No, it's specifically excluded. excluded. It would only be if it is rented out to an entity that is connected. So really simple example, you got a taxpayer who owns two companies, company A owns the property and company B runs the business and company A rents the property to company B. Still being rented, but that situation is excluded. Then it would count as an active asset. Yeah, correct. You, you sometimes have the situation where you might have a husband and wife and, and one of them owns the land and one owns the business sometimes it can actually be a little tricky to actually make sure that the entities are connected but there are some rules that that sort of try to address that as well the, the, the other point to note with the active asset test is that once an asset is active it, it it stays active forever so so what i mean by that is you could have let's say you have a business and a property and you own both of them for 10 years and then you shut down the business and you continue to own that property. That property continues to be an active asset indefinitely. You still need to meet the other conditions of the small business concessions, of course, but that particular asset, because it's been used in a business for more than seven and a half years, continues to be an active asset. You could hold it for another 40 years and sell it. And if you met the other conditions in the small business concessions, it would still be an active asset, even though the business has been ceased for a long time. It comes up quite a lot, actually, this issue. Sometimes you have clients where they're, that exact circumstance, there was a business being run, it's been ceased, but yeah, there has been a business there. So it's really important to ask those questions because you wouldn't intuitively think that, oh, well, the business is shut down, <laughs> has been running for ages, but you know we can still get the small business CGT concessions potentially. So, For example, grandpa 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> immigrated from Italy or, or Greece, ran a restaurant for for decades, closed it down. The building has been rented out since, and now Grandpa wants to sell it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, covers. And then covers. I think nobody would think of the small business CGT concessions. Mm. Or, or, not nobody, of course, the lawyer would, but. Yeah, it wouldn't be your go-to uh, yes. thought. Yeah, you've sort of got to, you might be looking back quite a long time at that point as well. So, so those are the two main conditions. Where you've got shares or units that are being sold as distinct from goodwill or land, there are additional conditions for, for shares and units. The, the tests get more complex. Historically, there are only two conditions that needed to be met. One of them was you needed to look at the assets of the company or trust and work out whether its assets are active. And that's called the 80% test. And the other one was that whoever's selling the shares or units needs to have enough of a stake in the company or trust. And that meant that they needed to own at least 20% of an interest in that company or trust. They can't be a complete minority shareholder. And I think 20% is quite concessional. It's mm. quite generous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have four complete or five completely unrelated families owning a business. Each of them could get to that 20% potentially. That rule becomes much more complex when you've got multiple entities along the chain and need to work out distributions and so on and so forth. But yeah, in principle, it's to stop, you know, small passive investments qualifying for the small business CGT concessions. So if you get through those conditions, you then go into sort of concession land. And one of the complexities here is that there is actually a number of different concessions available and they've all got different treatment. And some of those concessions have additional requirements to meet as well. The best is the 15-year exemption. So you might know that that's a complete exemption from CGT. And because it's a complete exemption, it's got the most conditions that need to be met as well. So it requires generally that the assets been held for at least 15 years and that either the taxpayer or someone connected with the taxpayer is at least 55 years old and the CGT event is in connection with their retirement or that they're permanently incapacitated. And must the asset have been active for those 15 years? No, it doesn't need to have been active for the 15 years. It just needs to be owned for 15 years. And then active for at least seven, seven and a half, and a half years. Yeah. Where you've got a company or trust that's selling the asset, there's an additional requirement. You need to have a significant individual for at least 15 years as well. So that can be quite complex working through that. You need to look back historically and work out, is there someone who's got that 20% stake for at least 15 years? Sometimes that's not met where you've got a discretionary trust, for instance, that's spread around distributions. So that's the best one. The, the, the other pros with that one are that you can put a lot of money into superannuation and where you've got a company or unit trust, you can actually extract the money out of the company or unit trust without the normal tax that would flow from moving money out of those structures. So without it being a dividend, for instance, for a company. So that's it can be a, it's a huge advantage. 
and that's it's by far the, the most advantageous. But a lot of the time, clients might not have owned the asset for 15 years. How much of this could you move into super? Up to, there's a... Is that the lifetime limit? Of it's the lifetime limit. So it's, no, no, no. It's it's the CGT. It's it's a separate regime called the CGT cap. And it's indexed each year. It started as a million dollars back in 2007, eight, and it's been indexed every year. It's around about $1.5 million now. It's limited to the capital gain. So if your capital gain was, let's say, $500,000, but your sale proceeds were more, it's still limited to the capital gain that's made. But yeah, it's potentially as much as $1.5 million that can be contributed to superannuation. It could be very large, yeah. Yes. And so coming back to the point you made earlier, even if you've already maxed out your transfer balance cap, yep. you can still move those $1.5 million into accumulation and leave it in accumulation. Yeah, correct, yeah. And, and this this exemption is not limited either. You could have, as we talked about earlier, you, you could have a, a farmland that's sold that's worth well more than $6 million, but the taxpayer is carrying on a business, you could have a very large capital gain. You could be 10 million, 20 million, and that entire gain would be reduced to zero. So it could be really, really powerful. The other concessions, there's there's a 50% reduction. And that one is easy. That, that one comes yeah. without any other comes without, footholds. Yeah, it's just a choice whether you want to apply it or not. And generally, you would want to apply it because it would reduce the capital gain. There's a retirement exemption, which allows up to $500,000 of capital gain to be exempt per per individual, per significant individual, more or less. And you only need the small business 50% reduction, and you only need the retirement exemption if you didn't qualify for the 15-year exemption. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you qualify for the 15-year exemption, the slate's wiped clean and you don't need to worry about anything else. If, if you if you need to start looking at the other ones, it's because the 15-year exemption doesn't apply. The retirement exemption, there's a requirement to contribute to super if the taxpayer is under 55. If they're above 55, 55 or over, then there's no requirement to contribute to superannuation. They can still do so, but subject to the work test, that they can still do so, though. But that means... The money that comes through the retirement exemption is then subject to the contribution caps. No, it's still exempt as well. So okay. those, so you, contributions made using the fifteen-year exemption or the retirement exemption are are exempt. But obviously, with the retirement exemption, it's a five hundred thousand dollars lifetime limit, so you can't hmm. contribute more than five hundred thousand dollars using the retirement exemption yes. either. Yes, yeah. but the contribution caps won't hinder you in any way moving these amounts into super. No, no, absolutely not. And the, for the fourth and final one is the small business rollover. And that pretty much grants a tax deferral, which can be indefinite. It requires that the taxpayer purchases a replacement asset and the replacement asset needs to be a business asset, essentially. Even if the taxpayer doesn't purchase an asset, they can still apply this rollover for at least two years. So I kind of like to think about it as a bit of a bit of a free kick. It's uh, like a parking lot. It's a bit of a parking lot, yeah. So you get at least two years and then you can get more if you acquire a replacement asset. 
If you apply the small business rollover concession to a new asset you buy, you basically reduce the cost base of this asset by this rollover amount. In a in a in a shortcut way, you do. What technically happens is the cost base is not reduced. However, there is another capital gain that's sitting there waiting to be triggered. It's under CGT. There's three CGT events called CGT event J2, J5, and J6. So, so what would happen in your example is let's say you buy a replacement business. When, you, when that replacement business no longer qualifies, for example, because you sell it or you stop running a business, then that capital gain under that J event will will rear its head essentially. So it's it doesn't reduce the cost base of what you acquired, but it has the same effect more or less yes. because that then means that you can still get the full depreciation of the new asset. The cost base is not affected, meaning you get the full depreciation of the new asset, mm. but you still have this capital gain parked Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So long as it's a replacement business asset, yeah, yep, mm. yep, quite correct. So potentially indefinite basically means if you never sell this rollover asset, mm. then the capital gain just sits there indefinitely. Yeah, yep, yep, could be. Uh, but yeah. it probably would come through if one day you sell the business or sell the shares or something, yeah. then it probably would still come up. Yes, at some point in time, there would be a transaction, but it could be, you know, a long way away, especially if it's added by a trust. Yes. How is this tracked? Because I can imagine over the years, it's easy to forget that you have a two million capital gain somewhere that you are meant to recognize yeah. at some stage. Yeah. How is this tracked? Is it tracked through the tax return every year? That Does, does the tax return ask every year, do you still have a J2 capital gain sitting somewhere? I'm not sure. I don't think it goes to that level of detail. Yeah. You have to specify when you claim the concessions, but I don't think... Because you then I can specify. imagine these capital gains yeah. easily get forgotten. You know, 20 years later, mm. nobody remembers that that replacement asset had a J2 capital gain sitting against it. Yeah, I, I would. I agree with that. It would be, and, you know, the concessions have been running for about 15 years now. You can imagine mm. as time continues to progress that if you've done that transaction quite a long time ago, could, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and especially if you change advisors or something like that, then it could get, could get lost um, at some point. So I'm not sure how it's tracked, if it is even tracked, uh, but it's a good question. So there has been um, a little bit of change in this area and there's a bit of a history to it. Back in, uh, back on budget night, in May 2017, the, the government announced that they were going to make some um, changes, some some integrity measures were going to change with the small business CGT concessions, and that was to counter a few a few loopholes in the in the concessions where um, potentially very large, um, quite wealthy taxpayers could claim the concessions. Ultimately, what was proposed by Treasury was actually quite a lot wider than. Um, I guess the spirit of the, of the budget announcement. Eventually, what happened is law had uh, is now introduced, um, which was introduced in September last year. Um, that's effective for all CGT events happening after eight February two thousand eighteen. The reason that it wasn't budget night was because the changes actually went 
quite a lot further than the spirit of the budget night announcement. So you know, a lot of the time government will say, oh, well, this change applies immediately from budget night, but you have one line in a budget paper about what it means and it's quite hard to work out exactly what that is. And then you've got to, you're, you're now bound by these new rules, but no one actually knows what they are. So that's sort of what happened here. The, the changes went a lot further than what was probably anticipated. And as a result of that, it's, it's all CGT events happening after 8 February 2018. And so what had been happening before these changes and what these changes tried to change was, for example, you would have had a company that had a huge share portfolio, let's say a share portfolio of 20 million, and then they would buy a small convenience store that had a turnover of less than 2 million. And then you could sell the shares in this company and the entire capital gain would be tax-free. Yeah, correct. What was possible was it was possible to sell assets that wouldn't otherwise qualify for the concessions by virtue of being a small business entity on something that was completely unrelated to what the asset that was sold was so yeah that is that is an example uh, uh, another example was that you could for instance own let's say 30 percent of a company because you had 30 percent, you weren't connected with the company let's give an extreme example let's say that that 30 is worth 100 million dollars no way you're going to get the concessions but what you could do is you could become a small business entity by buying a milk bar, buying a bed and breakfast. And because you're a small, you're then a small business entity, your turnover is under $2 million and you don't have to include the turnover of the other entity, you would meet the concessions and then all of a sudden you get all these great concessions where it doesn't sort of make sense that you would get concessions on something that's completely unrelated to what your small business actually was. So that was the driver for the changes. But unfortunately, the changes actually go quite a lot wider than just that. So all of these changes are limited to sales of shares and units. So it is still possible to do exactly that same thing where you don't have shares or units, but applying to shares and units, there's actually multiple tests that are now imposed and it makes it, it can make it quite a lot harder to qualify for, for the concessions. And even if you do qualify for the concessions, there's a lot more sort of boxes and checks that need mm. to be done to, to actually mm. get there. And this new legislation is written in a way where when I read it for the first time, I really thought, on what drugs were the people who <laughs> read this? I, you can read it 25 times and you still have no idea what they are saying. It's the most confusing yeah. piece of legislation I've ever seen in my life. I think it's that example of that sort of piecemeal approach where you've got rules and then you try to draft something that modifies those rules rather than having a good look and sort of upgrading the whole infrastructure you you put a little patch in that tweaks this thing and then that thing and on its own is completely incomprehensible it, it makes no sense on its own it's only through having a good knowledge of what the criteria was before that that you can really understand what has changed which is not great from a access to law type type perspective. But it's great for tax lawyers because <laughs> no normal person can understand this anymore. Hence, you really need to go somebody who deals with it every day. And yeah, correct. So there's there's two changes that are very uh, complex. One is that there's a new active asset test that 
doesn't actually replace the old test, but it's a new test on top of that. It's subject to various integrity measures and you've got to apply a, a quite a different test, which can have a completely different outcome in certain circumstances. The other um, test that's probably of a more wider application is where you're selling shares or units, the company or unit trust previously didn't need to meet either of the $2 million turnover or $6 million net asset test. The taxpayer did, the one selling the shares or units. But under this new test, the company or unit trust itself needs to meet those conditions. For example, let's say you own 25% of a company. You could be under $6 million net assets. Let's say your 25% is worth $4 million. But you've got to test the company as well. And if your share is worth $4 million, then the company is actually worth quite a bit more, more than $6 million. So not only do you need to test your position, you need to actually test for the company too. And the taxpayers that are affected by that change is primarily people who own between 20 to 40% of a private entity. The reason that it starts at 20% is because you generally don't have enough for stake below 20%. And the reason that it's up to 40% is that beyond 40%, you're generally connected with that entity anyway. So by when you're connected with the entity anyway, you need to include its assets and turnover in any event. So it doesn't really make a difference. But where you've got, say, let's say three business partners, one third each, it's, they're very much affected by these new, um, these new changes. You don't have that sort of sweet spot anymore of not being connected with the entity but having enough of a stake because you still need to. It's not that you're now connected by having 20%. It's that you're in that spot where you're not connected with the entity but you actually need to test the entity as well. So Once you have 20% or over now, you yep. need to include the value of the entire entity into your net value test. Net no, asset value test no. no, you need to... In a sense, it's doing that, but you need to do another test, a completely separate test. So you still need to do your net asset value test with, let's say, 20%, but you also need to do a separate, either a net asset value test or a turnover test for the entity itself, not including your own assets. So it might be the same result that you fail because of that, but you need to actually do the test for the company or unit trust I see. So as a one, separate test. I see. So once you earn 20% or more, this company or trust needs to pass the net asset value test in its own right. Yeah, well, or, or not the, even or 20%. Anytime you're selling shares or units, doesn't matter what, I mean, you won't qualify if you've got less than 20% for other reasons, but anytime a taxpayer is selling shares or units and wants to qualify for the concessions, this new test needs to be met. And all the all these new tests need to be met anytime any taxpayer wants to um, sell shares or units. So it applies very broadly and it increases the complexity and also the cost of advice for claiming concessions on the sales of shares and units. And as you probably know, it's usually best from a tax perspective to sell shares or units rather than assets of the company uh, from a from a vendor perspective. Because you get the CGT discount. Yeah, yeah, you get the CGT discount. The money is not trapped in a company. Yeah, there's, there's it's better for a usually better for a vendor. So it's it's sort of a negative on that. Mm -hmm.
Welcome back. So if our client is in a simple legal structure and clearly under the thresholds, then I think many of us can deal with that alone. But if it is a complicated structure of companies and trusts and close to the thresholds of the basic conditions, then it gets a lot more dangerous. In the next episode, episode 166, Andrew Henshaw will walk you through five case studies around the small business CGT concessions. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.